0: two mats that's the number two m-a-t-t-s and there's a link in the show notes
1: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash
1: achieve today. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in The New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European do join us by subscribing at the forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Politics Podcast from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to be sure of getting a copy of our paper, plus access to our online archive, You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up this week, a new columnist for the New European talking Trump and Biden and Corbyn and Starmer and Johnson. Paul Mason is joining us on the podcast. And after that, we will be putting more pompous politicians and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. But before all that, Happy New Year to you. Hope you had a good Christmas too. I uh, see Boris Johnson got a smart new haircut for Christmas, just a shame that the same old thick head is underneath it. Now, I wanted to alert you, Snowflakes, to a Brexit tragedy you might have missed. It's the plight of one Scottish business owner who revealed in a financial disclosure document that Brexit had hit him with higher prices uh, from additional freight and import duty charges and lower availability of staff, with lack of access to European staff for businesses in general, resulting in greater demand for individuals who were previously available. That's what uh, they wrote. And who was this? Unlucky entrepreneur? Well, it was none other than the presidential grifter and election crybaby Donald Trump, whose golf courses at Turnberry and Balmidi lost a combined £7 million in 2020, much of it due to Brexit. Uh, that's the same Donald Trump, of course, who once called himself Mr Brexit, who formed his own gruesome twosome with the nicotine-stained man-frog, Nigel Farage, and the same Donald Trump who hailed the 2016 referendum vote by claiming, I think it's going to be great, I think it's a fantastic thing. They took back their country, that's a great thing. Um, Donald Trump later predicted that Brexit would allow the UK to take back their monetary. He said it'll, you can take back the monetary. Uh, he said uh, Brexit would enable his administration to soon sign a massive trade deal with Britain. That would be one of the advantages of Brexit. Uh, he also predicted that Boris Johnson would do a very good job as prime minister. I think he would be excellent, he said. Old trumpster there, mystic Don. The Trump family's losses in Scotland were confirmed in accounts signed by Trump's son, Eric. Eric Trump, who recently assured Americans that allegations of collusion with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign could be ruled out, uh, he said uh, his family was not smart enough to do it. Not smart enough was actual quote. He said, we didn't know what the hell we were doing, which explains a lot about Trump and Brexit, doesn't it? As well as a lot about Trump and everything else. <laughs> Now, it's my pleasure to introduce a new columnist for The New European, the writer and commentator, Paul Mason. You'll know Paul from uh, Newsnight, Channel 4 News. His work appears in The New Statesman. And he joined us on this podcast last year to talk about his excellent book, How to Stop Fascism, uh, which is well worth a read. Paul, welcome back to the podcast and welcome to The New European's Circle of Columnists. It's great to be on board,
0: Uh, but what a time.
1: And, uh, well, it's an amazing time to write about politics, and, and the last uh, the last few years, uh, which we will talk about in a second, has just been a whirlwind, hasn't it? It's an honour to have you joining us. I, I do note that you and I were sadly absent from the New Year's Honours list once again. <laughs> though there is one, there is one name on that New Year's Honours list, um, which has obviously caused quite a bit of discussion this week. Tony Blair. There's a huge petition against his uh, his knighthood and you know we've heard arguments in favour of Blair's knighthood from people who talking about Northern Ireland and the work that he did for LGBT uh, equality education where, where do you
0: stand on this? Well I'm not really in favour of knighthoods I, I, I do think it would be nice to have a, a, an honest system that was democratic and transparent and that could recognise you know one of my friends one of the senior nurse got a a very high honour a, a, a year ago, and I was really pleased to see that happen. But, you know, I mean, with, with Blair, you know, I, I, I'd gladly sign that petition, to be honest, because I do think until you have a, a thorough accounting for how the Iraq war happened, uh, Blair, you know, it's difficult to it's difficult to acknowledge the good things that he did. And he did, you know, his government did deliver some good things. No one should dispute that. I think it's highly political as well, the idea of, you know, giving him that honour at this time. Um, so, but I have to say, I can't get massively exercise devoted. I can't, I'm not somebody who thinks that the worst people in the world right now are liberal centrists, no matter what they did, uh, you know, in the Iraq war or Afghanistan. The worst people in the world are the people I'm writing about in my inaugural column, uh, who are the anti-democratic right and far right who stand ready to basically destroy what there is of democracy in the West, if we let them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's a, it's a, it's a great first column. It's obviously, uh, this, this podcast is coming out on the, the anniversary of the storming of the Capitol and, um, there's a very stark warning in, in this column, at no point since 1945, you write, of Western democracies faced a threat as bleak as this, uh, the threats, the collapse of democracy in America, and the domino effects that, that would create uh, for ourselves and our European neighbours. Um, I mean, in all the stuff that we're learning about January the 6th now, what, what has stood out for you? Well, from
0: very soon after January the 6th, it was clear that there was a conspiracy by far-right groups to storm Capitol Hill. That, that, that was clear within days. Mm. It was also clear within days that Trump's organization had paid for that rally to take place. So it had mobilized people by plane, by coach. It had, done the, it had formed the infrastructure. What wasn't clear, and only came out in a series of memoirs and leaks, is how serious Trump was in actually trying to overturn the result of the election. The plan was to pressure Mike Pence, the vice president, into agreeing a procedure laid out in what we now call the Eastman memo. John Eastman, one of Trump's uh, advisors, Eastman says, "Look, if we can if we can get Pence on the floor of the the the, uh, the House of Representatives to set aside seven states worth of results because the 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 state level government in, in each one of these states says they're not safe." Then, we. this is what the memo says, We can. Trump will have a majority of 10 because those states will be kind of abstaining and, and, and Pence can gavel Trump in as president. That's what they were trying to do. Yes. So, yes. and it, it wasn't just that they were fantasizing about it. They had a command center in a nearby Willard, Willard Hotel. Willard Hotel is the hotel President Lincoln stayed in. It's a historic center of, of, of power in America. And they were ready to do it. Now, the only question remaining is... To what extent there was was there collaboration collusion and a command structure between the rioters and the Trump administration and that's what the American government's trying to find out
1: it's uh, it's fairly incredible isn't it when you uh, the stuff that's coming out now when, when people like Sean Hannity are <laughs> the almost the voice of reason and ascending, messages to the Trump campaign saying he's got to come out and condemn this and doing yep. uh, doing something about it. How real do you think the threat is of, of Trump returning as the nominee in, in, in 2024 and, and maybe winning the, the presidency? And with all the stuff you're talking about in, in this piece, the laws that Republicans have brought in to deter voting, gerrymandering of electoral districts, politicising vote counting mechanisms, does it even matter whether it's Trump at all? Well, it kind
0: of does because Trump is the person so far, uh, the only person we know who can mobilize, you know, millions of poor people to, to vote Republican. And and th- there are people who will coming along who will try to uh, imitate Trump and 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 use some of the same methods. But so far, the American right has only discovered one figure who can mobilize this mixture. What, about what I write in my book, I've kind of you know, evangelical Christians and people uh, for whom like the the, the kind of main pastime is porn cinemas. You know, this is the kind of only only Trump has been able to, 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 to put that coalition together. But as you suggest, it probably doesn't matter because what's happening right now I mean, I think we have to recognise January the 6th, 2021 as an insurrection and on the anniversary of it it wasn't a, you know, as one left-wing commentator put it, an armed shit show or a kind of demonstration of kind of you know, a kind of, you know, pretend insurrection. It was an insurrection. And it was there to back a presidential coup that could have worked, it came close to working. Now, uh, because of that, we then have to then say, well, what's happening now? And since, the Republican right has spent, has wasted no time in, at state level, politicising the mechanisms of vote counting. This is what matters. The officials who do this job in the United States, we we, we know that One of them, in the run up to January the 6th in Georgia, heroically resisted pressure to, as Trump put it, find a few thousand votes for Trump. But that won't be a a problem anymore because in future, in many states, we're gonna see that role politicized. You know, almost the legitimization of electoral manipulation is happening before our eyes. And as I write in the column, what that means is that the insurrection continues. It hasn't stopped. The real problem is that if, you know, you're sitting there saying, okay, well, you know, we're the American government, we're the FBI, we're the White House, um, 52 people have been charged with conspiracy. Not one of them is a Republican politician. The Republican politicians who put this coup together, the journalists, the influencers, their lawyers, haven't been touched at all by the legal process. And I fear that's because where the US state to literally, you know, arrive at their homes at 6 a.m. with a with an arrest warrant, large parts of the Republican right stand ready to kick it off right now. Mm, I suspect that the that the that the Biden administration understands that it understands. In other words, it is sitting on a very fragile democracy. And I really hope that we throughout the rest of the West begin to understand that, too. We cannot take the existence, the future existence of, of U.S. democracy and the federal authoritative federal state, for granted beyond the middle of this decade.
1: Yes, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say this, and 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 that's the same question as before, really, because you know, what what is the what's the, what's our best possible hope to come out of these congressional inquiries, and and then again, does it even matter? Because clearly. Fifty percent, or forty-three percent, or forty-five percent of the American people will will not believe w- what comes out of it anyway. Yeah, I think the one one doable thing
0: is to detach what remains of the so-called uh, moderate or respectable Republican Party, you know, from the project of insurrectionary violence. I mean, if it comes to the, I mean, you have to pinch yourself saying this: the party of Abraham Lincoln. You know, can we can we detach? The kind of mom and pop store owners of middle of America, the farmers, the small business owners who habitually report vote Republican. Can we get them to understand that they're currently led by crazies who want to take you know firearms into the chamber, uh, you know, firearms into the, into the parliament, and and continually talk about insurrection? And indeed, in the case of the the, the Republican Congressman Matt Gates, you know, put out. Um, memes showing themselves killing left-wing democrats can we can we in other words disrupt the unity of what what the philosopher Hannah Arendt once called the the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob can we do that that's one doable task yeah the other one the other one the other doable task is to wake up liberalism because I'm not the only voice saying this there is there are others now within far more within the center of American liberalism who are saying you know we're on a path to civil war. We are on a path to the breakup of democracy. The insurrection, the second insurrection, is in in preparation. The question then arises: What do you do about it? And large amounts of sort of liberal legal scholarship have come to the conclusion: Not much. You know, we can tweak a few you know, a few state level laws. No one wants to question the Constitution. For me, the U.S. Constitution is is, is currently a recipe for the collapse of the U.S. Republic. It is. The First Amendment gives you the right to call for genocide. Many Americans do so loudly on the internet. The Second Amendment gives you the right to assemble the firearms to commit one. I don't think we're going to see genocide in America, but I do think we are seeing a society preparing itself for a violent outcome. And what that means is not just about arms. It's about the about otherization of the enemy. It's about what the historian Alan Nevins once called in the run up to the American Civil War, the emergence of two peoples, two completely separate peoples who just don't have anything in common with each other. I think sometimes it, it is for us the external commentators to to the United States who can say this without having skin in the game, without annoying our next door neighbour. That, that is how it looks right now. So we need a militant democracy. We need a democracy that is pro, that arm, armed in its own defence. German democracy since 1945 is is officially described as an armed, self-defensive democracy. It will put down fascism. It has laws to do so. And I think my, my advice to my American liberal and left colleagues is that you've got to start thinking like that.
1: Is it, um, is it a matter of regret that the the person who is you know at the center of should be at the center of opposition to all of this is is Joe Biden? I mean, I, I don't think many people will argue with Joe Biden's record over time or or, or most of his record over time, but but he he, he does feel like a, a particularly ineffectual figure against this uh, against what's coming from the other side. Joe Biden needs and needed.
0: To win the election and still needs um, a vibrant left-wing ally, mm. an alliance, a movement. Um, and I think the only reason he won is, is that, you know, unlike sections of the European centrist uh, political establishment, he and indeed Blair in his time, Biden understood you can't win without the left. You can't win without a vibrant uh, set of trade union, minority, uh, state level, city level uh, activists who prepared to get out and mobilise. Um, and that's because this political centre has really disappeared. Well, all you're doing in elections like I think the last American general election, the coming French general election, the next British general election, all you're really doing is mobilising two tribes. It's a bit like Northern Ireland, mm. I'm afraid to say. The centre, the sort of middle swing on uh, un- people who are not really fussed about cultural politics, it- it's-, it's diminished. So Biden weirdly was able to do that by making an unofficial deal with Bernie Sanders. Sanders stepped down early to the chagrin of some of his supporters, I think rightly, so that the, the, the Sanders wing of the Democrats could fold in to a relatively united campaign. Um, I think that's fallen apart. A lot of the enthusiasm of the left for Biden has fallen apart. But I think it's saveable. Um, and we, it has to be savable under Biden. My, the the, big, the question that haunts me is whether Biden's the right person to to run for president in 2024. I'm not sure he is, and I'm not sure Kamala Harris is either. I think that what you try and what what we need in America is somebody who can a kind of second Obama figure who can pull together. All the different aspects of the alliance that's needed. I'm not sure who that would be, by the way. I can't no. see anybody on the horizon. I, I, we would we would need a, a serious character to be able to, to pull that together and to offer. Now you see the point is Biden has his legislative program has been much more radical than any European social democracy has ever offered. You know, including the the Pasoi Podemos government in Spain or the uh, the Finnish government. This is you know massive spending massive borrowing and spending to try and dig America out of a hole, both on COVID, on democratic deficit and on poverty. Now, what you want is somebody going forward who can kind of live that dream, who can, who can see that as a, as not something they came to late in life, you know, as Biden has done, but as something they always believed in. And I think if, um, if the Democrats can find such a person, and remember, it is a little bit of a sort of 1,000 fish Race, yeah. you know the, the American uh, the, the primary process. There could be somebody out there at state level, uh, a, a senator, blah blah blah, who could do that um, if we were able to find them. Uh, and that might happen, but I'm not I'm not sure Biden can do that. I'm pretty sure he can hold it together in the face of what Trump's trying to throw at him. You know, all the non compliance with Congress. The you know, two of the key witnesses, Bannon and Meadows, the Trump's ex chief of staff, are currently basically put themselves. In contempt of Congress, that means they could go to jail for not testifying in this inquiry about January the 6th. I think Biden can ride that crisis out, whether he can win another election against Trump or a surrogate Trump is really, I'm not certain.
1: Well, there's, a, I mean, it's a, it, it's a fascinating article, uh, the, uh, an amazing uh, first column that you've written for us, and, and uh, there is there is uh, much more of that to read in this week's issue of the New European. I did want to want to talk about some of the reaction we got when we announced on social media you were joining us. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of this, Paul. Excellent news! Great bit of transfer business. I've never bought the New European, but I will start now. Uh, they were all fairly typical ones. I, op- I really like this one. Another leftist who hates our democracy. We are out of the EU. We are now British. Mm-hmm. And then we had another one that says he seems to have went off the rails recently. I can only think the last two have, have got something to do with what you've written about the phenomenon of, of Jeremy Corbyn and the phenomenon of Brexit.
0: Well, so- yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the off the rails thing is very interesting. I get that a lot. And what yeah. it is, is, is people who... You know, I was an absolutely ardent Corbynister. And, you know, I gave up a a very good and very well-paid job to to have an independent voice. And and that was partly because people senior in the Corbyn leadership team said, "Look, we haven't got enough journalists out there batting for us. Uh, And I said, right, OK, you know, it's our one-off, one chance to run Labour from the left. Let's do it. I gave that all I could. But it wasn't simply the pathetic position of Corbyn and the people around him on Brexit that made me speak out, you know, I, you know, more independently towards the end of that project. Um, it was what I just became increasingly concerned that the unburied corpse of Stalinism is, is wandering around the British Labour movement like a zombie. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was having a lot of influence, not with everybody, you know, certainly not with people like John MacDonald or other amazingly you know, talented and dedicated left leaders in the Labour Party, but it was unfortunately having an influence within Corbynism. And I, and I just thought, I'm not going to sit here. You know, I, I used to think that the differences between social democracy and, you know, what we might what we call Stalinism or left orthodox Moscow communism didn't matter because Moscow, you know, because the Soviet Union's gone. Uh, and I became more and more clear, and it's clearer to me now when we see the reaction of some left people in Britain to. To Russia and to Xi Jinping in China, that this is a live issue, and that even though Russia and China are basically capitalist countries with di- capitalist dictatorships, they weirdly have still got supporters inside the labour movement. So mm-hmm. they often, that when I when people say I've gone off the rails, what they mean is I refuse to shut up <laughs> and 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 carried on talking about that issue no matter how uncomfortable it makes the young generation, and it does make them uncomfortable, because, you know, in this world of, you know, can't say this, you can't say that, um, you know, otherwise you get cancelled, to say, no, Stalinism lives and it's a danger, and it's just as big a danger, actually, as it was in the 1930s, when it killed 1.2 million communists, uh, in communists in a purge and 20 million in a famine. A lot of young people who just thought politics was going to be kind of nice and kind of you know empowering and hopeful they don't want to talk about that so i think that's where some of the negativity and of course the other negativity comes from people who like your other correspondent who see me as an avatar of left remainism and i'm very happy to be seen as that because events like brexit only come along once in history there'll only ever be one brexit Um, and i fought it despite the fact that i was very very critical of the european union I fought it to the very end, and I'm not sorry I did so. Uh,
1: well, I can, I mean, on your the, on the first point, I can only report that um, I've been I've been a member of several local Labour parties, and one of the ones that I joined, the, the, my, the first meeting that I went to, uh, there was a long service award to to a long-standing member, 25 years, 30 years, I think it was, and he was given a bound uh, set of speeches to some so- Soviet. Presidium, which I presumed was some kind of a joke, but he he accepted with tears in his eyes. It was a, a, just a remarkable thing. So I know I know of what you speak. <laughs> um, I mean, on Brexit, just let's let's just end by by you know we, again we we hear Keir Starmer saying, make Brexit work. Uh, is make Brexit work the only logical thing the Labour Party can say right now? Because you've spoken, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, just recently about how Biden had to get elected. Does he have to say make Brexit work to get elected? Well, I think he has to say that, but more.
0: Uh, and, and there is no route to power for Labour other than through winning back 60 Red Wall type seats yeah. like Lee, where I come from. You know, for the Tory for the first time ever since modern elections began. It was Liberal, then it was Labour. Now it's Tory. Um, we have to win them back. And so, you know, we will win some back over the issues of sleaze, others over the fact that leveling up is a fiction, but others will never vote for us if the, if the idea is that we will one day re enter uh, the European Union. However, I always thought from the very beginning, this is why I actually toyed with, 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 with trying to do a soft Brexit. I've always thought that the best place for, late, for, for, for the United Kingdom with its sterling economy. With its highly financialized economy, is at the edge of the European project, probably inside the single market but outside the EU. Inside, actually, for me, far more importantly, the foreign and security policy, but outside the European army, you know, if it ever exists. I I, I also that that would be a a sweet spot, which which could probably bring that kind of English English nationalist section of the working class to a conclusion that, you know, let's be close to Europe, but slightly separate from it. Now, I mean, that debate has been blown out of the water by Johnson's chosen form of Brexit. Mm. It's a suicidal, hard Brexit that's left us not just economically adrift, you know, as as evidenced by the Northern Ireland protocol, but geopolitically adrift. We are not in the game of European security. Johnson and his foreign secretaries haven't even seemed interested in the major issues confronting Europe. And so I think make Brexit work for me also has to mean find a permanent solution to the broken trade situation that currently exists. I would, I would prefer a, a single market type outcome. I think now that we've had the end of freedom of movement, could we negotiate our way back to a form of free, freedom of movement that was less problematic for the people who found it problematic? That is, you know, the sudden influx in the early two thousands of of A eight and A ten migrants, you know, which did put pressure on doctor surgeries, did put pressure on schools. Could we find a way of overcoming that? Uh, Especially at a time when people are going, oh shit, you know, there's no lorry drivers to uh, deliver my Christmas present, there is no nurses to nurse me in hospital, and you know, and and hey, guess what? You know, Northern Ireland peace process is in disarray. So. I think I'd like to see Labour being more concrete about what its proposal is, but we cannot fight the next election on a return to Europe. You know, maybe demographically in 10 or 15 years' time when that generation that is very English nationalist has gone and a new generation that is thinking, hold on a minute, you know, um, you know the, the, the ski slopes in, in, in Austria look quite nice why can't I get there maybe that that's when I think that I think historically that's when the question of re, Europe reopens
1: in the middle of the century. Well there is much more to come from Paul Mason I read him every <laughs> week in the New European to subscribe you can join us at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe thank you so much Paul we will speak again soon I hope. We will Steve. Now, before the Hall of Shame, our usual reminder about something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's excellent. It's Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast. Two seasons are available now, telling the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a superb listen. It's available wherever you got this podcast. So now we're ready for the Hall of Shame, the home of pompous politicians, putrid pundits, things that just annoy me. Generally, And let's go straight, let's just get straight in there. Let's start the new year by saying alack, egad, harumph. It's Anne Widdicombe Corner. What has the terrible Anne Widdicombe written about in a terrible column for the terrible Daily Express this week? Well, Anne has suggested celebrity resolutions for the new year. Uh, and she writes, one of them is, Chris Whitty should strive to be a bit more cheerful. And that's right, I think. Maybe when he does the slide with the number of people at intensive care, he could uh, do a cheeky wink after it. And when he comes to the deaths, he, he could break into song. But Anne also weighs into the Tony Blair knighthood row that we spoke about with Paul Mason. And she says the worst thing about Tony Blair is he doesn't give John Major the credit he deserves for peace in Northern Ireland. <gasps> Anne Whitacombe writes, Let me point out what our Tony resolutely refuses to acknowledge. John Major started the peace process. Yes, that's right. Tony Blair doesn't give John Major the credit he deserves. Let me read to you the opening remarks by Tony Blair at the Royal Agricultural Society in Belfast on the 16th of May 1997. That's two weeks after he became Prime Minister. He said, Uh, these are his opening remarks This is the first thing he said he said it's no accident that this is my first official visit outside London I said before the election that Northern Ireland was every bit as important to me as for my predecessor I will honour that pledge in full in his more than six years as Prime Minister John Major came to Northern Ireland many times and he talked to countless people I know the respect in which he was held here After only a few days as Prime Minister, I also begin to appreciate fully the scale of his efforts and his devotion to peace and a political settlement. If there is a new opportunity for progress now, it is in large part thanks to him. So there you go, there's Tony Blair giving full credit there to John Major as part of Tony Blair's sickening record of not giving John Major the credit he deserves. These people, Ann Whitaker and his uh, friends, they just lie and lie and lie, don't they? And they think no one will pull them up on it and talking of uh that's daniel kaczynski the tory mp is in the hall of shame kaczynski family are polish he spent the first six years of his life living in poland he has spent twenty two thousand pounds of government money on polish lessons including eight thousand pounds in 2020 and 2021 and, and daniel kaczynski in his defense said that he told the bbc that he you know he needed Uh, to be fluent in Polish, uh, to take part in trade discussions with uh, the Poles. And uh, he said, I've never been fluent in Polish. And it does seem odd then that in 2019, he tweeted, as an almost fluent Polish speaker, I'm doing all I can to convince the Polish government to veto the extension of Article 50. So fluent enough then to have talks with the Polish government, but not fluent enough to... uh, not have to spend £8,000 of your my money on more Polish lessons. Uh, Kaczynski has already been reported to the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards after it was revealed he'd hosted a Saudi Arabian businessman in uh, Parliament while hoping to secure a lucrative second job. And on another uh, occasion in September 2017, Daniel Kaczynski uh, asked the Saudi Arabian fixer to get him a large payment for speaking at a conference about the World Cup in Qatar. He said it was because he needed to pay school fees. Nigel Farage is returning to the Hall of Shame, and credit to my Colleague Tim Walker for this one. Uh, Tim Walker writes in his Mandrake column in the New European this week. Nigel Farage is to become Basil Faulty without the laughs. His company Thorn in the Side has lately acquired a six hundred thousand pound property for rent to holiday makers, not in Torquay where Faulty Towers was located, but in Romney Marsh on the south coast. I understand it's a two-storey detached property with a parcel of land across the road from a beach. For the time being, Farage does not intend to preside over himself as Falty did, but to let it out. It could make him £25,000 per month. Romney Marshes are letting us hotspots with Airbnb showing properties there can make up to £630 a night. Just imagine the sitcom possibilities of Nigel Farage as an Airbnb uh, landlord, especially if the local council books up his place to house refugees who've just come over the channel on small boats. We uh, we await that one. Paul Staines is in the Hall of Shame, the aptly named right-wing journalist behind the Guido Forks website, is here for his tweet about Angela Rayner's appearance when she was subbing for Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions. Uh, he wrote, Rayner wearing pearls jibes about Tory tax rises. Wearing pearls well, the temerity of the woman. Just imagine a working-class woman with a good job, earning quite a bit of money, daring to wear pearls. If you were in any sort of doubt about what kind of person Paul is, when even... People from the right wing said they thought that they, him having a go at Angela Rainer wearing pearls was being a bit ridiculous. He replied with a link that he'd done over a year ago uh, to an article he'd done over a year ago, ridiculing Angela Rayner for wearing affordable high street clothes, a cardigan from Wallace, a T-shirt from Asda, and leggings from River Island. He thought that was terrible too. Uh, and maybe Guido Fawkes Paul Staines could offer himself up as Angela Rayner's personal shopper in future, selecting clothes that he considers acceptable for a woman of her status. But foremost or for least in the Hall of Shame this week is Edwina Curry, who somehow, despite everything she's done in the past, seems to be getting work as a pundit again. Edwina, a keen Brexiteer, was invited on radio to name uh, and asked to name the tangible benefits of brexit please name the tangible benefits of brexit and she replied freedom two fingers to brussels it's absolutely fabulous they're not uh, tangible are they and they're not true either edwina uh, edwina curry carried on for many people this is an exciting and successful time but nobody has a magic wand um, and I suppose that coming from Edwina Curry, the phrase, nobody has a magic wand, really is an example of somebody not giving John Major the credit he deserves. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to our producer, Ellie longman Root. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. I would. You can give us nice ratings and lovely reviews too. I tell you what else is a great podcast. It's Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you got this one. If you like what we do, please subscribe to the New European, NewEuropean.co.uk/slash-subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group or follow us on Twitter at the New European, and of course you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.